0: hello dear heart welcome to the flourishing practitioners podcast where we talk all things about space holding caring for our clients and succeeding in our businesses we explore the wisdom from coaches counselors and healers my name's is gabrielle walker and i'm so honored that you're here let's dive in hello beautiful humans I just finished a conversation with Karen Sisson from Arrowrat Rat Wellness, who oversees a team of counselors and behavioral practitioners in Australia. She is also a counselor herself and was diagnosed later in life with ADHD. We talk about her personal experience and some of her professional insights. I relate a lot to different pieces in this conversation and wanted to put here up front that this is an exploration I'm going through myself at the moment, where I sit in terms of my thinking um, and around my own brain and different things happening. So I wanted you to know that up front if you're wondering as you listen throughout. I'm also still in the process of forming a uh, working conceptualization and understanding for myself about neurodivergence. So particularly ADHD and autism, I have a number of clients who, who have discovered later in their life and well into adulthood that they have neurodivergence and previously not having known it yet it making complete sense and who have had varying degrees of success with traditional responses to their their way of life their thinking the exploration of masking and unmasking and finding who you truly are if you have had to be another person to make life easier for others. Uh, There's obviously a range of different socializations and understandings that are interpreted differently when we've got different brains. And for me, the discussion is super interesting around this space, but it's also one where I feel that acceptance and learning how brains operate is the primary response and then figuring out how you want to operate within that uh, moving away from shame and blame and unmasking or choosing to just be yourself as we all know is not an easy process if you've never known yourself or been yourself or loved yourself for who you truly are it's not just a decision that you make it is an ongoing engagement with your life and yourself and your energy as well as allowing the people in your life around you the time and acceptance to learn who you are with your new learnings, because it will be rapid, it will be a lot of change. As you learn more about your mind and your way of being, there will be a lot of things that come to light that may change your engagement with your family, your loved ones, your partners. And that can be a bit of a process. From what I have noticed from walking alongside the beautiful humans who trust me in this space is that the system really isn't set up for brains that work differently. I mean, I don't actually think it's set up for any of us, but in this particular aspect, there's a lot to unpack, a lot of layers, a lot of understandings that... If we're supporting and we have more of what is referred to as a neurotypical brain, we may have absolutely no idea what people are navigating, how much energy it takes to do day-to-day things, how much effort it takes to book a doctor's appointment or to organise your medication. These things are made more difficult by the system and their habits of responding to what's expected and the soft journey that you go on with discovering what that may look like to do therapy in a new way, to learn what's been programmed in a new way, to learn how to work and operate in a new way, to work out what things you do or have been told you should do that are actually important to you and realizing that if they are maybe there's different ways that that this can happen to enhance your skills and outsource other things or find people that are willing to remind you of things is such a unique process depending on your circumstances and what's present in your life this is just my primary thought and i really want to thank all the clients who have been sharing your experiences your insights your vulnerability, your rawness, your with the things you have learned about yourself in the process with me so I can support you better, but also so I can support people better in the future. I so appreciate it. And I'm going to be talking to a few more people in this space because it is something I am really interested in. But for now, let's hear from Karen. She is such a divine human and I can't wait for you to all listen. Hey everyone. Welcome to today. I'm really excited to talk with Karen Sasson from Arawat Wellness. Uh, and... Karen is in my supervision group, so that's how I know her as a beautiful practitioner. She also oversees a team of counsellor and behavioural practitioners Australia-wide and work with different people who have barriers in their lives. She has been diagnosed later in her life as a cis-female neurodivergent woman and practitioner. So that's what we're going to be talking about today, really, is exploring space between practitioner and wellness, but also so us. Uh, those of us who are practitioners who are seeing um, neurodivergent clients can be a little bit more thoughtful maybe think about it in a different way because um, as Karen will go into I hope uh, the approaches aren't always the same um, for neurotypical people so welcome Karen thank you so much for thank joining us you. I feel very thank you honored.
1: for inviting me it's so exciting
0: where would you like to start as uh, your per- your perspective of, of as being a practitioner and what you do of your work or your um, later diagnosis? What would call you most?
1: Mm. Well, I guess um a bit of background um so like you mentioned, I run a team of um counsellors and behavioural practitioners primarily through the NGIS system. Um, so yeah, I've got um now a team of thirteen, which is exciting. So that's been a massive, I think, learning experience for me to be able to shift my focus from being a practitioner directly to running a business. And with my late diagnosis only a year and a half ago, so 47 I was when I was finally diagnosed, um, which was a huge relief for me because I always thought I was just really weird. So it's nice to have some confirmation around, no, there's something different.
0: I would love to hear about, so how did it feel being diagnosed at that late age? What, what, what were the feelings that came up for you around that?
1: It was a relief, uh-huh. a real sense of weight being taken off my shoulder, things that I had experienced for my whole life that I never had a name for. Um, And to be able to finally have, I know people talk about not being labelled and being scared of labels, but for me, the label was a real relief. So for me, it was um, inattentive ADHD with generalised anxiety disorder, which made complete sense upon reflection. Mm -hmm.
0: And how did it change, um, like you said, about how did it change your practice and business and and how you began to approach things or did it? Mm, It did. It did.
1: I had um, around the time of um, COVID, I would started to um, had to make some adaptations to my business and started to move in a different direction. I was primarily wanting to be a counselor, but fell into behavioral practitioner role. Um, had to go through the audit process and registration with the NGIS. Started working with clients who, obviously, behavioural. Most of them have either a combination of um, autism, intellectual disability, and ADHD. And within my assessments and with working with the clients and observations, I started to notice several things that really hit home for me, things that I had struggled with my whole life. Um, along with COVID, there became an increased awareness, particularly among um, cis females, of how we present quite differently with our ADHD. Um, Even things like TikTok and Instagram and all those little snippets of information that people came to the realisation when everything was quiet with COVID. And we had to make changes to our lives. We started to be able to, I guess, have the space and the time to reflect upon our own mental health and the own challenges that we face. Um, So there was a sharp increase in people like, oh, this is weird. I really connect with these people on TikTok saying that they have ADHD. So it was a combination of my client work. And having that increased awareness that made me really sit back and go start the diagnostic process. What a process!
0: And and for those of us who are working with um our clients, female clients in particular, what are some of the signs that uh, may differ from male ADHD that that we you could bring some light to that you're aware of? Mm, there's a lot. Um, Primarily
1: because the diagnostic process is based on male presentation, it is changing. People are starting to become more aware that we present quite differently. I think it's a cultural thing. As growing up, cis female. We're not encouraged in the same way, particularly with my age group. It's more so, it's a little bit different now. We're not encouraged to be physical to have that excessive energy, to be able to express ourselves. It's the sort of cultural expectation of girls have to be quiet and we have to be kind and passive and calm and, you know, sit and do your your crafts and your reading and your art rather than go out and kick a footy around. We internalise our hyperactivity our brains are a million miles an hour at all times. Interesting things that obviously I can't diagnose my clients, but I think once you get an eye in, once you've had your own diagnosis, you can tell your, your people. They're our people, yeah? Um, within a few minutes quite often, they'll come in presenting with I have really bad anxiety. I have really bad depression. I've been on medication for 10, 15 years. Nothing's making a difference. And as you start to work with a client, you're like, oh, is it really anxiety as a standalone? Is it really depression as a standalone? Or is there something else going on underneath? Little things like one of my key questions is, and this is quite funny, How do you watch a movie? How do you watch a TV show? And one of the things that always pops up is subtitles. Yeah. We have to have subtitles on because audio audio processing just sort of goes hand in hand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, When you're watching a TV show or a movie, do you ever sit there and go, oh, that actor? I know that actor and then I have to get into IMDB on my phone to find out what I knew them from. So I call it itchy brain. We need to know something. We need to know where that person was. We need to soothe that hyperactivity in our brain.
0: Yeah.
1: So that's sort of one of the key things. How do you watch a movie?
0: Yeah, I love that. I love that question. And, and. With with the different, um, I, I'm just aware that there'll be a bunch of people potentially listening to this that that have no idea. But I'm I'm thinking about that difference of senses as well, needing to sort of fulfill and stimulate and learn through all of the senses. Is that something that you relate to or, or see as well?
1: Yes, sensory processing being um, either sensory seeking or sensory avoiding being aware of our environment, being aware of how we feel at any given time um, was always a thing for me. I didn't realise that neurotypical people don't commonly think about it. So um, little things like my clothes are too tight one day, that's really going to irritate me for the whole day. I'm going to be not able to concentrate on something because my socks feel or I don't like things around my neck. Jewelry sometimes feels like it's strangling my fingers, which does not make sense. Yeah. Little things like that. It's too hot. It's too cold. I'm hungry. I'm not hungry. I'm really hungry. And now I'm going to get really angry. All those sort of things that we're almost hyper aware of.
0: Yeah, Little that makes things so much sense. Like- and and um, in your journey, uh, what how did anger play a part I'm in a bit of a process of conceptualization um for for my loved ones in my life but also uh, for clients and myself and and about about the emotional regulation but also with anger and how that sits and exploring that is that something that you've explored
1: mm, yeah absolutely um little things like um hormonal differences um being um, almost enraged. Seeing red is how I describe it. I can cruise along pretty well, pretty even-tempered. If something happens, like if I hit my head or bang my finger or something, it's an instant feeling of enragement, which comes up, which I've explored quite often with clients with ADHD and autism or a combination. We cruise along, we cruise along and then bang, we're all or nothing. And it almost feels like an out of, Body experience at times. I'm looking at it and I'm like, whoa, that's a really, really strong reaction to that particular trigger. What's going on? So I think it's an interesting exercise to be able to recognize that autism or being neurodivergent, I like to say, is not an excuse, it's not an excuse for bad behavior. Sometimes it's a reason. Shifting that slightly, not placing the blame on ourselves because our brains are different. Being able to recognise that, hey, I've had a really big feeling. Where's it coming from?
0: As uh, practitioners, I know you. You, I'm I'm asking, I guess, from whatever angle you want to respond as a client with your desires from practitioners, but something that uh, in in talking to a bunch of people who have. Um, neurodivergence for for our discussion they wondered about how we should be as practitioners we should be approaching it differently because the suggestions for neurotypical people can be really different you know around organization or moving past shame uh the approach is different because the the root is different or our brains are different and how we're Mm -hmm. functioning or design or organizing things or focusing so um my my um my friend said she's like i've got a million diaries i've got a million organizers but does it mean i use it (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, so yeah just can you say anything on, on that uh, that for us to be aware of? Because I think that is so key. If someone is um potentially has been misdiagnosed with anxiety and depression and actually has neurodivergence and you're starting to suspect that, um, suggesting some of the, the normalized approaches may not work.
1: I have a strong view on that. Um, so I like to call journals and diaries my emotional support journals. Yeah, I don't use them. They're very pretty and I like to collect them and I'm in love with the idea of being able to use them but I just can't, yeah. I will write as a um, a strategy that I developed from an early age. I will write lists on a daily basis and then sometimes in the middle of the day I'll write a new list. Never ever gets finished. It's almost like an exercise of me being able to Put my intentions for the day on paper. Then it's double-sided. When I will look at my to-do list, I will feel intense shame and guilt that I haven't had the functionality to be able to check it all off. Get a little bit jealous of people who can do the whole to-do list in one day. Start off with a task. And this is um, very common, very common. Started with a task, let's say, cleaning the bathroom. I have the intent. I know it's got to be done. I'll be putting my cleaning stuff in the bathroom. Next thing you know, I'm sorting out the laundry. I'm cleaning the toilet. I'm Oh, look at that. That needs dusting. I'll do 10 different things because my mind's gone a million different ways. And then I'll be like, I didn't clean the bathroom.
0: I really um, relate. Yeah
1: yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's quite amusing to look back. A um, little bit frustrating now. I'm living in a completely neurodivergent household. Mm. So my sons and my husband we're all neurodivergent, um, ADHD autism combination. It's controlled chaos sometimes. Yeah, when we're all focused, when we're all we're going to be working on a project together it's fantastic but on the other hand there are a lot of piles there's piles of what we think is organized it's completely not
0: so we I, i saw a thing on um on instagram a reel today about that called dump piles where they're mm-hmm. organized chaos so yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a synchronicity and and did your diagnosis have anything to do with um the diagnosis with your children or was that sort of or your family or did that overlap or were they separate
1: they were separate so kids were first mm. and um i didn't ever make the connection i thought i was you know completely in control i've got everything handled as um a parent with special needs kids we have a lot of things that we have to do and we work with deadlines and priorities so that works quite well with our brain and then just sit back and go mm, actually I'm going to get a diagnosis and that led to my husband getting his diagnosis too because we clicked we're like the same person but in different bodies we we do really really weird things at home and we can unmask and we're completely accepting of the whole family which is lovely but it's also yeah a little bit chaotic at times
0: and what would you say your difference, You can you don't have to answer any question I ask or not. I'm just following the the tangent. But what would you say your difference is between masking and not masking? And and this is a pinpointing. This is so I remember it. But um, was it difficult to unmask initially? The process of unmasking is that challenging?
1: I think I'm still doing it all the time.
0: Yeah,
1: I wear several different masks. So um, within my role at work. I'm a supervisor, I'm a business manager, I'm, you know, I do counselling for fun, really, and I'm a behavioural practitioner. So there's four different roles because they're four very distinct roles. I feel like I have to mask in a different way for each one of those roles. When I'm at home, I still mask to a certain extent, and I think it's a lifelong process. If I've taken 46 years, 47 years, wearing this mask and being so used to it, potentially it could take the same to become completely comfortable with myself, completely unmasked. Very, very rarely will do it in a client session unless I'm super comfortable and they're also unmasking. It's a wonderful thing to see a client become more confident as we work together. And they start to unmask. And I'm like, that's you. That's the real person. It's quite lovely. Again, they have trouble with, I guess, social acceptance. Rejection sensitive dysphoria. Big thing. Huge thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Because when you're neurodivergent, we've had to be hyper aware of people around us in order to survive. In order to avoid trauma, we can pick up on body language naturally. When we walk into a room, I don't know if you've ever experienced it, we can pick up on the vibe straight away. We can tell who's having a fight. Oh, you know, they're a couple. This is all very weird. I don't like it. Or this room has a great feel to it. I feel really comfortable in it. So we can pick up with our rejection-sensitive dysphoria the minutest of body language someone's tone of voice someone's you know eye movement anything like that because we're constantly on the alert of am i adequately masking enough to be socially acceptable
0: mm. i'm not sure if, if this is relevant if you um are both neurodivergent in your relationship but what's something that a neurotypical um, partner should be aware aware of with that Um, is it rejection sensitivity
1: Mm, yeah Um, we need to be constantly reassured yeah we need to feel that we're accepted for what we are and quite often we are hard work we're hard work yeah we we can just be the most delightful weirdos but we're hard work
0: I love that description that's actually actually so perfect and and it's it's a bit of a mixture I think like I'm observing it in a number of clients and people I know that the the pain of unmasking and the back and forth and then combined with that rejection sensitivity and being hyper aware of of how it's being perceived do you think that's always a can it, do you think it's a distortion sometimes as well in the unmasking process during that time and I'm I'm, I'm nailing down this because it's something that I think people should be aware of I, I don't know I don't know but from what I've been looking at on social media and things it's almost like oh get get your diagnosis and you'll start unmasking and we'll accept you but it's actually a, it's actually a full emotional and spiritual and energetic process I would say.
1: It's a huge process it's almost like a second life you've been working so hard and I'm going to be doing a collaborative session on YouTube in the next few months around the masking at school being neurodivergent at school how much energy it takes how they're trying so desperately to be liked and accepted by their peers that you know you're working with a child potentially who is already 50% of their energy is used up for the day so to the freedom of being able to unmask is a little bit overwhelming I don't ever suggest to any of my clients you know just rip the mask off be yourself entirely people will accept you because people are people society is society, we've come a huge, huge way in accepting people who are different, but not all the way. I don't know if you've ever heard of the term the uncanny valley. I don't know a lot of background about. um, Do you remember that movie Polar Express? Creeps me right out. Yeah. (laughs) Because, and that's the uncanny valley um experience with it goes right back to um evolution i believe where um people had to survive talking about like caveman sort of years if something was a bit off with a person or a situation a survival instinct kicks in and goes hey i have a gut feeling that this is not right you know the hair's going up in the back of my neck and that's essentially the uncanny valley effect. You look at something, it doesn't look quite right. Hmm. And this is something that's been described and rightfully so, I understand it, but it's a little bit hurtful. People with autism, ADHD or the combination have been told that we have the uncanny valley. When people look at us, something's off. We're not quite right. We're not quite all there. And there's that sort of um, non-acceptance. And we see it all the time unless we're in a group of our people and we can all accept us for being different. So neurotypical people will quite often look at us, depending on how well we mask, as just being a bit good. Mm, mm,
0: yeah. yeah. Yeah, I hear that. And and then I think of something else that... Um... Potentially, practitioners aren't aware of or isn't a huge part of the discussion. But especially for business owners, I think it's actually quite, we're actually quite suited Mm -hmm. to to doing um, business uh, being neurodivergent, I'd say, because it gives a little bit of different, um, we can do different tasks, we can move ourselves at our own pace, not other people's pace. There's all different, yeah, I don't know. So, how have you found that with the the business aspect and, and Can you speak on that?
1: Very, very distinct challenges. Um, About a third of my team are neurodivergent and I actually actively advertise for people who identify as that, um, whether you're formally diagnosed or self-diagnosed because, and this is the way I like to look at it, any form of neurodivergence I like to view as like a superpower. We... Our brains are like Ferraris. They go so quick, so quick. So we're very, very good at certain things. Now, I love my work. I love working with clients and working with my supervisees and my team. I hate the paperwork side of it. It is physically painful for me to do my invoicing once a month. I know I've got to do it. I've got to do the invoicing so I can pay everyone and pay the bills. I will avoid it at any cost Till it gets to the point where people are screaming at me, I'm getting that external pressure. I'm going to do the invoicing. Being able to recognise where our strengths lie is a huge key when we're in business. Being able to recognise where we're a little bit weak, We like to be good at everything. But we're not good at everything. So in my cases, I've outsourced the marketing. I've got an admin assistant. I've got a new business development manager who's coming on board. So she can do my invoicing, yeah? Being able to recognise where are my strengths, relationship building, working on templates, developing policies and procedures, all that sort of stuff I love. Other side. How can I manage that? So I have big ideas, as most people who are in and I have these big ideas and sometimes they just fail epically. Yeah. Nothing small scale, yeah? <clears throat> I have a big idea and I want to put it into practice and I'm going to spend $10,000 on that. Uh-oh. I didn't
0: really yeah. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah I'm I'm laughing because I relayed and I also said him and my boyfriend as well with them doing it. Um and and it, did you identify like in this process for you, did you identify any of those narratives around like not finishing or these big failures or anything prior to being diagnosed that now you know as part of it? Or or were you always just accepting of that? No,
1: I had no idea. I was always guilty and somewhat angry at myself for not being able to finish something if something doesn't hold my interest it's going to it's all or nothing yeah um with things like we talk about hyperfixation and they will change from one day to the next yeah I will spend my I guess my impulsive buying around art supplies yeah it's usually three o'clock in the morning if I can't sleep Uh, what can I buy I really don't need a six hundred dollar set of watercolors but oh they're so pretty i never use them yeah so then my it's going to switch from one day to the next so Mm -hmm. then it's going to be diamond art yeah like a massive collection all or nothing i don't like it anymore it doesn't give me that dopamine release
0: mm. so is that something you accept in yourself now or is it is it still something you're navigating
1: i think it's something that's a work in progress
0: mm. yeah.
1: i can recognize when i'm um my brain is actively looking for its next type fixation mm-hmm. um and accept that sometimes yes i am going to be impulsive I'm going to make impulsive purchases, but can I maybe set a limit where I don't spend $600, yeah, because then I have regret. Mm-hmm.
0: Two of you, on people self-diagnosing, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Oh, my God, I have so many thoughts, okay.
0: <laughs> I've actually
1: got into arguments over this. I think that self-diagnosis is valid for the reasons of there are subs- Substantial and significant barriers around getting an official diagnosis. Um, Talking about money, it's about $1,500 out of pocket. Time in our local area, the current wait list to see a psychiatrist is now over two years. Yeah. Um, So money, time, this is quite ironic. In order to get diagnosed, you have... A significant number of steps that you have to undertake we don't like doing that our brain doesn't work like that so you're asking us to behave in a neurotypical way in order to get a diagnosis of being neurodiverse people will
0: start the process i just want to say that's a mic drop moment like (laughs) i don't even but it is it's it's something that is so inadequate in the system for for that aspect but yeah continue.
1: Mm-hmm. The steps are overwhelming and I get a lot of feedback around I have to do potentially 15 different things in order to get the end goal um, and they're not not little things they're big things each one of them each hurdle that we have to overcome and some people will get to the point of doing one or two things and going this is all too hard. I've got to, you know, this age, I'm going to be fine. I don't need medication. I don't need a diagnosis. With my clients, sometimes as an external, I guess, motivator, you know, let's work on this together. This is the next step that you have to do. And this is the next one and the next one. In some states, they add another couple of steps. Um, in South Australia, you can have an official diagnosis and your general practitioner can refuse to prescribe you with medication. If they think that um, it's inappropriate for you to have medication, no. Nope. So you have to go and find yourself a GP who's open to an adult ADHD diagnosis and to then prescribe you the appropriate medication, which just seems the gatekeeping is really impressive.
0: Yeah, yeah, I've um, witnessed that in a few different instances, and I just, it does not seem okay, or even the difficulties with getting script from a different chemist than you had the initial one from, it Mm -hmm. seems totally, like when you remember to go to the chemist, you remember to go, it's because you saw a chemist, (laughs) it's it's not because it's like you go to the same chemist all the time. Mm
1: Yeah, remembering to take your medication if you're, um, say, on dexamphetamine, that's a short-acting, and I'm not going to go into a great deal about medication because I'm not a doctor. It's a short-acting medication. You have to remember to take that twice a day. We're lucky to remember once a day, yeah? So there's all these things, and that's why I think in a roundabout long-winded way, self-diagnosis is valid. There was a recent you know, a bit of a hoo-ha about the BBC running a story, I'm not sure if you heard about it, where essentially the reporter pretended to have ADHD, gave all the symptoms to prove how easy it was to get a diagnosis through a private practice. It was quite invalidating in as far as people are going through this process for fun. It's the opposite of fun. No one would ever describe it as fun. It's quite rare, I believe, from my own personal experience, to undertake the process of an official diagnosis if you are not 99.9% sure that you're neurodivergent. I don't think that any anyone would randomly wake up one day and go, I'm going to get an ADHD assessment. Mm-hmm. It's creating a bias, I think, around people genuinely seeking a diagnosis. And I hear horror stories all the time, people around me, people who come to see me in my um, acquaintance group. As a presenting female, you go to the GP. That's the first step to get a referral to a psychiatrist. And one young lady that I know, clearly, clearly ADHD, all over the shop, she's just delightful, but she's, you know, like a cat on speed sometimes. She was knocked back three times. Three different male doctors who gave her varying reasons for not providing a referral, keeping in mind that the rest of her family, all males, have been officially diagnosed because she's a female. No, no, you can keep a job. You can make eye contact, which is more of an autism thing anyway. You have a relationship. Things like why why gatekeep it to the point of blocking them at
0: that yeah or blocking people's well-being the people's ability to to learn about themselves and to manage their minds in different ways if that's what aligns for them Mm. I, I find I find it frustrating as well do you think for autism and ADHD if therapy is helpful what your you on that counseling or
1: so there was a statistic I was reading I love statistics that um 50% up to 50% and I'm not sure I haven't verified it of people with autism or ADHD will have the other one as well yeah to work it's quite frustrating because sometimes autism cuts out or masks the ADHD and vice versa, we can be a little bit of a conundrum there. Um, So, you know, potentially, if you've been diagnosed with autism and ADHD, you might have the other one as well. Yeah, and we're learning more about that. I think from a counselling point of view, if you go down the process of having your ADHD assessment and if you get appropriate medication counseling coaching anything like that is huge because you're in a whole new world you're adapting you're getting to know yourself as a different person yeah an accepting person of I'm not going to be able to work with the strategy of just write a list just have a diary so yeah. yeah,
0: yeah like we were talking about earlier it is a process but the the process of accepting ourselves and learning how we move in a new way or how people can move in a new way and how how our loved ones and environments can adapt to that as well I think is is I can, I can see therapy and coaching and different um approaches being really helpful with with that process of looking at things in different isolation and examining them for the for the individual because even though we're talking I guess in a general way today um but also about your experience everyone is so different and what was accepted in them as a child you know in their education and their different ways of processing so um it will be different for for each person mm-hmm.
1: yeah some um, like I said earlier it's like a whole new world quite
0: often
1: yeah. um an opening of your eyes um to accept how you fit in the world even things like there's a new thing I saw the other day um, called dopamine dressing yeah it's it's delightful it's dressing in such a way that makes you happy and I just think it's so accepting and it's so um lovely to be able to go hey I'm gonna wear there's a there's a um, a local lady who, she's just adorable. She will always match her scrunchie with her shoes. If she's wearing yellow
0: shoes, she'll have a yellow scrunchie. And I'm, not, I'm just like, oh, I love it so much. <laughs> That's yeah. amazing. Is there anything in in what we've been talking about that you would like to dive into um, a little deeper before we round?
1: Really... <sighs> uh, yeah. You know me so well. I just um I do deep dives. I I have been told and I apologize in advance for this. Gabrielle. Info dumping. Uh uh-huh. when you when you find a connection. We don't do generally, and I can't speak for everyone. Small talk is awful. I hate. Please don't ask me about the weather. I don't care. Um,
0: I-, I felt really proud of myself when I, like, learned how to do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I'm, like, it's become this thing I can just, you do it. You say it at that point in the sentence and then yeah. they respond and you're like, okay, I've done it. <laughs> yeah.
1: We're just following a social script, yeah? I think that's why I love my job so much is that people come to me and they will pay me. To have a deep and meaningful discussion and we're not going to we're going to skip over all the small talk and we can get into the deep dive and that's what I love which is probably why I just love my job so much um info dumping is the thing that I get feedback on frequently um when I get excited about something and a topic and I'm finding that just a little bit of, you know, interest from someone and then it all comes out. Yeah. So I'm aware of that. Um, I don't like pulling myself back, but I will. Yeah. Being following socially acceptable rules, little things little things that come naturally to neurotypical people like you've said we have to learn we have to these are the steps this is the script this is what they're wanting to hear from me this is what I have to say yeah
0: yeah when they say how are you they don't actually mean how are you
1: <laughs> no no I'm not so making my, my like, info Grr. dump Yeah. <laughs> Oh, there's so many things. And this comes back to masking as well and being socially acceptable. Everyday interactions when you're in the supermarket or in the the cafe or whatever, I'm constantly having to think, oh, what do I have to do here? Saying congratulations to people is something that I have recognised doesn't come naturally to me. It's odd I feel happy for people when they get married and they have babies and all that stuff but that whole oh congratulations I have to actively think about
0: so interesting for me when I did the um sorry I'm going off on a bit of a tangent but I'm it's bouncing off that when I first did the love languages thing I got zero on gift giving uh-huh. so I was like oh that's shocking you know that I got zero so I was like give gifts and and because I like was like you have to give more gifts like um, <laughs> then it, it made me aware of how many things happen that people have to celebrate because mm-hmm. <laughs> you know I, mean? I was I was sort of like oblivious a little bit before me.
1: I'm so I'm so oblivious. Um, even with I have um a lot of empathy for people. Sometimes um it verges over into sympathy. I can mm-hmm. control it when I'm with clients. But I feel things, and I feel things deeply. Um, commercials quite often make me cry. Oh, that um, there was a, a music video that came out a few weeks ago, um, Louis Capaldi. I was inconsolable for about an hour afterwards. And I'm like, it was a three-minute video. I feel things deeply. But then on the other hand, I don't feel things.
0: Can you expand on that? Yeah.
1: Um, feeling? When someone has someone close to me or an acquaintance has experienced a loss, I can recognize and I do the right social script, but I don't feel it. If that makes sense, so it's quite a, it's a an all or nothing thing for me. I guess it's a positive thing to have when you've got a client who's coming to you who's quite distressed and you're able to say all the right things, but you're not getting caught up in it at the same time. So that's something I notice, that real disconnect.
0: That's so interesting.
1: So many interesting things when you can self-reflect. Yeah. You can start to analyse and you're open and you're curious around what am I feeling here? Being mindful. Mindfulness techniques work really well for me, not for other people.
0: Yeah. What do you think? It, do you think that reflection is really important in the process of navigating a, a later adult diagnosis? Mm,
1: I think that learning the skills to be able to reflect, mm. learning triggers is really yeah. important you know you talked a little bit about the love languages before you know what is your style of showing love is that something that you're consciously aware of or something that you feel like you need to put effort into with your gift giving yeah you're made aware of it oh that's a zero that's not socially acceptable I have to do something about it I'm sure he'll love me sharing this. My husband's love language is touch. I hate being touched. Hate it, hate it, hate it. Give me like a message and I'm going to be in the corner crying because someone's touching me, yeah? But I know that you love touch, yeah? He loves touch. He's constantly wanting to touch me and me to touch him and, you know, just rub my head, touch my hand, and I'm like, I don't like it. But I'll
0: force myself to do it. I I hear you. I see that that a lot, and relate to the being. I love 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 touch, but also the the right touch. And there's sort of there's certain that sensory, different energetics of things as well around it. What what do you think is the importance of triggers? Is that to understand what you? Yeah, what's what? How does that help? If you're the therapist, it's like how you work with that or if you're a partner or if you're the person, whatever, however you see it.
1: So from my um behavioural practitioner side, we observe and we hypothesise potential triggers around behaviours. So this is something I really love. What happened to trigger that reaction and looking at from a scientific, a curiosity point of view, essentially, what triggered that reaction in me? And because we're quite sensory and we're aware of it, um, it can be things like I mentioned earlier, that I'm too hot, I'm too cold. My clothes are too tight. Something's really irritating me. Um, I can't get out of this situation. You know, when you're in a crowd around Christmas time at the, at the mall, you know, there's too many people. I can't breathe properly. I feel like I'm overheating and yeah, I hate it. So I'll actively avoid that. I know that's one of my triggers. And I know that when I am triggered, don't have them very often, but it could potentially lead to a full on panic attack. They're super fun. At the shopping center in the middle of the Christmas rush, Mm -hmm.
0: I was going to say it's super fun at the Christmas market. It's very fitting. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, I I always remember there was this cafe um, that people love, but it's got really, really bright lights, and the um, there was posters all over the walls, and I think the the couches were orange. Uh and it was just like I hated it I hated whenever anyone suggested to meet there and I'd be like can we sit outside like even if it was in the middle of winter because I was like why would you go in there
1: too much sensory overload sensory overload is a huge trigger in most cases um on the other side of it not being stimulated enough you know um The sensory deprivation um, tanks that were a big thing in like the 90s, I'm, I'm sure they're still around. Nope, nope. I don't want to be alone with my mind racing. Meditation doesn't work for me. And I think that's quite a common thing. I can teach meditation, yeah. I know the concepts of it and I know the benefits of it. It's a lovely thing. As soon as someone says to me, "Close your eyes and clear your mind," my mind goes, "Well, hello. Let's think about everything for the last thirty years." Yeah.
0: Yeah. My boyfriend described it as I was talking to him yesterday about us talking, and he said it's like he goes, "Oh, it's it's a million half thoughts." He goes, "They're like half thought, half thought, half thought, half thought, like burning through his head," and I'm like, "Oh yeah." (laughs) That's
1: One of the, um, in this, the ADHD assessment, um, it's called a Jasper Goldberg assessment. One of the questions, which I think needs updating is, do you feel like your mind has several television channels running at once? Yeah. And people get confused by that, particularly younger people. And I'm like, okay, think about it this way do you have 33 tabs open on your browser in your head at once now I get it yeah um when I go through my phone at night it's quite an interesting exercise that like you should try it. What have I searched up for on Google today And what random things led to that?
0: Oh my God. I, I studied sociology um as my undergrad and I would crack up where I'd find myself sometimes because it was like very Wikipedia central, the Google at that time. So I'd Google, you know, like whatever my topic question was and, and, and then I'd end up in like the Arabic, <laughs> I don't know, like origins of, and I'm like, mm-hmm. how did I get there? Because I'm just like, follow those Wikipedia links. <laughs>
1: What it's um I think they call it going down a rabbit hole, maybe? Mm. Mm. Or or the deep dive on a particular topic. Um, my youngest son is um it's actually his birthday today, he's just turned seventeen. Oh, oh he's an ADHD. Yeah. Um, see that's the social concept that you just did then that I have to force myself to do. He is obsessed with music. Obsessed. It's gonna be his whole life. He's getting a saxophone. He's got a clarinet. He's got every bloody musical instrument under the sun, yeah, because he goes down a rabbit hole. He hears a song. He has to know who wrote it, what year it was on what album, who it was produced by, all this intricate stuff, and he'll want to relay that information to me, and I'm like, uh Tune out after a minute. But he knows it, yeah, because he's hyper-fixated. He goes down the rabbit hole of that and that's what he loves, you know. um, Being able to recognise that in the people around you, the people in your family, that, yes, they do have 33 tabs open and if something sparks that interest, they're going to go down the rabbit hole and you're going to hear about it.
0: Yeah, that makes so much sense. And, mm. and and so as um, this is something I don't hear talked about that often. But as a business owner, it has. Do you think it's been? Yeah. What would you say to other business owners that are that are neurodivergent and or suggest or what what, what or what pops up in your mind to share about that? Whatever mm-hmm. it be, it can be related to that question or not. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: I think, um, like we mentioned earlier, being able to recognise your strengths and asking for help around your weaknesses because we cannot do everything. Yeah. Um, Burnout. Burnout's a real thing. Um, With my medication change recently, sometimes I feel like I can't get out of bed. I will make myself get out of bed that I'm having that task paralysis. I'm like, I'm tired. I'm working seven days a week. Um, schedule my first holiday for, I don't know, two years, two, three years, yeah, because I'm passionate about my job. I'm passionate about my business and it's my baby and I've put so much energy and time into it. I want to be doing it all the time. But I can't because I need to, you know, have a rest and chill out and watch, you know, crap on TV. Um, guilty pleasures like, oh, my God, the Twilight movies, they're absolute rubbish but they don't they don't require any effort on my behalf. So I'll sit there and I'll watch them back to back. I'm really, really burnt out. Little things like that. You talk about self-care, mm-hmm. Yeah
0: yeah do you do you think that the um the tiredness is related to to the overwhelm? Mm. Is, is that because because that's also something I hadn't really heard or read much about until I started speaking with different people. but is is that the or is that normally what's your view on that?
1: I think that um being overwhelmed and pushing ourselves really hard is a real thing. Because we want to um, we want to be seen as being competent and being good bosses and you know having successful businesses. Yeah It's a lot of energy. It's a lot of time. Um, I found myself stupidly answering an email at three o'clock in the morning because I was awake at three o'clock in the morning and I'm on my phone and I'm like, oh, there's an email okay, I'll just respond. Little things like that where I'm not really caring for myself. And that's something that I'm, I guess I have a weakness around that, yeah? Yeah, yeah. The constant pushing, the constant I have to be everything. Yeah, yeah. So that's a challenge for me is to step back and go, I can't be everything and I need to take a break. And it is acceptable to take a break.
0: Totally I'm
1: um breaks. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I love um when we do our group supervision and I won't go into it a great deal, but um you're so aware and you know, your self-care is lovely. Mm. Going to the beach and you know, a little bit jealous, but anyway. <laughs> Having that time and that awareness of I need to be alone and I need to do me stuff, yeah. When we talk about self-care quite often, it's a little bit different for us. Um, It's not bubble baths and having a glass of wine. Sometimes it's being able to be kind enough to ourselves to be a potato,
0: yeah, completely. But yeah. There's this thing, um, I, I often say this to clients, so it's coming to mind now, but because um, I, I do that open floor dance and one of the um, activities that was like game changing for me and it helps me understand what I need, they they um, cut the floor into like a quadrant and one each has a different need. So mm-hmm. one's like individual, so alone, one's spiritual, which is also an alone, but it's a different practice, I guess. And then one's partnership or like, connection with just one person so it could be a friend or a a partner and then one's community Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and you had to they I can't remember how long we did the activity for but every time your desire or want or need changed you had to change where you were dancing and then and I found it so interesting how quickly my needs were changing between the different ones but also that they have really filled a different place Mm -hmm. in me and and I think that it, it, so often like self-care is talked about about like alone time but sometimes self-care is me connecting with a friend mm-hmm. going to a community and then and, and and being aware with what I need is is really helps rejuvenate my energy in mm-hmm. a different way and um because I'm on a tangent now <laughs> um, I'll just keep going <laughs> but with um like someone else said that um with I forget where I heard it but that the feminine energy wants to fill up so that's more being around con- community and then the masculine energy will want to empty so that's more being on our own but we also have all of that inside of us regardless mm. of what our gender is so it's sort of that that stuff helps me when i'm like what you know i'm off center i can feel when i'm out of balance or when i'm i'm nearing i, ha- I had a lot of um burnout like if i think of when i was studying you know i had was studying my master's, had my business and was working like how many stupid number of jobs, like it's ridiculous. So to get to the place where I'm not there was really important to me because I it, I could do it and it was great. Yeah, it looked great external, but internal it's like did not feel good to, mm-hmm. be, to be that, using that much of my life force, you know. So mm-hmm. yeah, but I just love that thought of like, oh, what is it? need and
1: where do I need to go um Mm, and it's also um accepting being accepting that we have needs mm -hmm. that it's not all about the external provision because we're we're fabulous fabulous when it comes to crises we
0: can
1: step in and we can problem solve and we are the pillar of calm we don't often apply that to ourselves so I think that's a real skill around what do I need to be able to rejuvenate and rest and it's not having a bubble bath no yeah and I don't think it is that with many many people
0: no I get really frustrated about even in my own therapy that I've received when When I'm I'm genuinely just trying to explain my experience and someone will be like, Well, how's your self-care? And I'm like, I think I have the highest self-care of anyone I know, to be honest. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But it's like, what sort of question is that as a as a general solution to like my what I'm experiencing? (laughs) Do, Uh Do you know what I mean? It's like
1: I think, and you may be able to relate to this, what we're taught in our bachelor's and our masters and all that stuff is quite different to how we experience real life. And we're taught, you know, trauma-informed practice and stuff like that and, you know, self-care and burnout. And quite often I find people randomly throw that question in there without much thought around how that applies to the other person. 100%. I so agree with
0: you, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I really feel that, and I, even if I think about how we did our um, assessment, it was that they were like, "Oh, just say this because it ticks that box," sort of thing. It was like, "Make sure you mention that somewhere."
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: but anyway, so that so that's for people who are in therapy to also know, like we're we're learning on the job with people, with real people as well, and that conceptualizations or discussions like this are really important for you to have as a practitioner. Like for if there's any practitioners listening who are isolated definitely talk to other practitioners and start figuring their stuff out outside of the theorizing which often narrows in on on different diagnosis or different different presentations when most presentations are really complex and there's a lot happening everyone's got complex lives regardless of how grounded or aligned your life looks from the outside so yeah that's an mm. important piece as yeah well. I-
1: I think it's a massive thing to consider that what you're going to learn in theory is going to look very different. Um, and people who say, oh, I only practice CBT or DBT or whatever, it's like, oh, okay, I I know all those theories. We've learned all those theories, yeah, how that applies to an individual because an individual is so complex and then throw in some trauma and some neurodivergence and yeah, good luck to us.
0: Yeah, but it is what <laughs> is what I love about our work as well. I think I think it's such a it it's such a fun thing for me to um yeah to to dive into that. So I I really um I'll pop in your, all your socials and your website so people can can connect with you for sure. But is there anything you want to share, our audience, to know? Mm, I
1: think that one thing I really love practitioners, counselors embrace your neurodivergence and to share that experience it's a lived experience with clients because making that connection is huge
0: oh I love that too thank you so much I really appreciate it so enjoyed it (laughs) I feel feel as if I'll come back with round two questions sometime soon
1: (laughs) yeah do that do that